the service this morning again is maybe going to be a little less Christmassy than what um, you might expect at this time of, oh, thank goodness, Matt is here. I don't have to preach because he's taken, <laughs> unfortunately, no, but <laughs> blessings, sorry to call attention to you. Um, our sermon and our scripture reading today is not a typical Christmas passage, but I think we'll see as we draw to the conclusion of the thing that it really does speak to the very message at the heart of this Christmas season. So our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 4. Um, we'll be looking at more of the chapter in some ways, but I'll just be reading from verse 1 to the beginning of verse 6. Revelation chapter 4, 1 through 6. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. May we pray. Father in heaven, as we turn our hearts to your word this morning, we pray that, Lord, you would remove the veil, you would remove all the thoughts and worries and concerns that keep us from turning to you and fully trusting in you, from hearing your word as you speak by your spirit. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us minds to understand, and that you would give us hearts to fully put into practice all that you call us to by your word, by your spirit, and in your grace this morning, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, shepherds watched their flocks by night. Thank you. 
Ruth Ellis, but you can be seated. Ruth Ellis probably gonna not like me for this, but when we were talking about the songs for this morning and I suggested this while shepherds watch their flock, um, she told me the words that she and other childhood friends wrote to the first verse of that song, saying, that way you can giggle along with me when we're singing it. So if you notice that, um, you can ask her and she'll tell you. She'll tell you what those words are. They're not bad, they're just different. So I'll leave that between you and Ruthella to discuss at some point in the future. It'll be a nice conversation starter for all of you. So to uh, talk about this chapter in Revelation, I wanna go back to actually the book of Numbers and talk a little bit this morning about something that typically doesn't come up at Christmas time, the organization of Things work ever so much better when you turn them on. You will have a hard time reading this, I know that. Um, if you're really interested, I can provide you with a printed copy of this. But if you were to take a stroll around the camp of the Israelites in the days of Moses and Joshua, and you would be starting down here at the bottom left corner, as you look at this diagram, you would pass through, first of all, the tents of Simeon, Reuben, and Gad. Those three tribes were encamped on the south side of the camp. And then you would turn the corner, and going to the north at the far end, you would find Manasseh, Ephraim, and Benjamin camped there. Along the north side of the camp was Asher, Dan, and Naphtali. And on the east side, Issachar, Judah, and Zebulun, and you can sort of probably see the names of the tribes that are written around. This is how God organized his people when they were moving through the wilderness from Sinai onto the Promised Land. They had very specific directions for how they were to camp. Now, of course, that walk would have probably taken you quite some time, given that the number of the people of Israel in those days, the number of the men who were old enough to go to war was roughly 600,000. So that didn't include the women and the children, that didn't include the Levites who were not numbered among those who would go to war. So some scholars have estimated the number of the people at this time, those people camped around the tabernacle in the days of Moses and Joshua as anywhere from a little bit over a million to a million and a half people. So, you know, think Calgary. Think a movable and thriving city moving on through the wilderness every time the cloud picked up and led them somewhere else. And as you walked around through the camps of the tribes, you would have noticed that behind them, between the tribes and the tabernacle, were the clans of the Levites, Kohath, Gershon, and Merari. And at the very center of all things, the tent of meeting where God had decreed that his name would dwell, this constant reminder of his holy presence in the very midst of the people of Israel. On the south, west, and north sides, the tabernacle was surrounded by this curtain wall that had no breaks on those three sides. It was about eight feet tall, give or take a little bit. We don't know exactly what a cubit amounted to, but we're given these measurements like that. It surrounded 
The tabernacle itself, which was roughly 15 meters long from east to west, five meters wide, and five meters high. So when you arrived back, almost where you started, there where it says Judah on the diagram, if you turned westward and began to walk toward the center of the camp, you'd pass through the tents of Judah and behind them the tents of Aaron and Moses and his sons, people from the tribe of Koath or the clan of Koath who had been chosen to serve as priests before the Lord. And you would come at last to the eastern wall of the tabernacle. Again, that is on the right side of the screen. Now, the eastern wall of the tabernacle was the only wall that actually had an opening in it during the time that the tabernacle was set up. You would come to this entrance, 10 meters wide, 30 feet, that could be opened or closed by moving those curtains back. When it was closed, they were linked together, so the door was effectively barred. But if you passed through that entrance into the courtyard, the first thing you would see was the great altar of sacrifice. The entrance came straight in, led you straight to that altar where the slain animals were offered in fire to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, the one who had commanded that they do this because of his holiness and his greatness. Now the fire on that altar, and this is something we maybe don't think about, was not allowed to go out. So you walked through an opening. Here was this large altar of burnt offering where the fire burned 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That fire had been lit by God himself the first time that he received an offering on that altar. And the Israelites were supposed to keep it kindled even when they were carrying this altar on their shoulders, moving it from place to place. So when you walked through the door, here's the altar and there's this plume of smoke ascending from the altar at all times, providing a veil between where you're standing on the east side of the altar and the tabernacle itself. Again, a reminder to the people of God, to all those who had come to Sinai. And God says, when you stood at the foot of the mountain, While the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom, the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of fire. But you saw no form. God was saying, you're not coming here to see an idol. You're not coming here to see an image. You're not coming here to see some artistic representation of what you might think God is like. You are coming here essentially to hear the word, to hear the command of God and to be moved to obedience. From the east end of the courtyard, the tabernacle itself would have probably seemed wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom, seen through that smoke continuously ascending from the great altar of sacrifice. But if you were allowed to pass beyond that altar, if you were a priest or a Levite who had duties beyond that altar, then between the great altar and the tabernacle, represented by the circle there, was the bronze laver. It was a circular bronze dish filled with water. It was the place where the priests and Levites, before they came to take your sacrifice, were required to wash their hands and their feet. And having offered sacrifices, they proceeded back, if they proceeded back towards the tabernacle, they were required to wash again. 
Now that shows up in the vision in Revelation as that crystal sea. I know in our Dutch Reformed tradition, we have this song, by the sea of crystal, saints in glory stand, and people kind of imagine an ocean. But it's not that kind of sea. The sea in the vision that John has is um, what is represented by the laver here in the tabernacle. And it has to do with holiness and transcendence. It has to do that with the fact that God is God and we are not. That God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That God is the one whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil, as he says in his word. So he is not to be approached casually. The Levites were not to go into his presence with a laissez-faire attitude as if somehow, because they had been called to be Levites, they were entitled to enter his presence. Certainly we know that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But we are also told in scripture he is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. So the Levites were required to wash every time they passed that laver to be reminded that they were unholy people serving a holy God. Linda and I were recently spending some frivolous time watching a TV show which involved a young woman chasing a goose around a pen and the pen was covered in, let's just call it goose grease. I think that's, I think that's the term. So she's chasing this goose around and she falls just face down in the goose grease. And right about that time, her, her boyfriend arrives. And you could see it coming and it was just horrifying. Had I been the boyfriend, I would have got back in the car and driven away. But she goes running out of the pen and jumps and embraces him, throws her arms around him and he happily receives her attentions and then suggests in no uncertain tar terms um, you need to go have a shower. The thing is, by that time, so did he. Because that, that filth, that dirt, transmitted from her to him. But God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And so the laver is there as another kind of barrier to remind the Levites that they must wash. Just for information here, um, in 2 Samuel 6, there's an incident where a fellow named Uzzah is walking along as the ark is carried on a cart up into Jerusalem and the oxen stumble and the cart tips and it looks like the ark might fall and Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark and God strikes him down. And a lot of people hear that story and think, well, why would God do that? He's just trying to keep the ark from touching the dirt. But one commentator speaking on that, and I guess this applies to goose grease as well, but one commentator speaking on that says Uzzah's false assumption was that somehow the dirt of the world that God made would be dirtier than the hand of a sinful and unholy human being. 
but that's not the case. So it wasn't so much that the laver could wash off the dirt. That laver could, of course, never wash away sin, but it could remind the priests and the Levites on a daily basis that if they possessed any holiness at all, it was an imputed holiness. It was a holiness that came from somewhere else, a righteousness that didn't come from their se- themselves or their ability to keep the law, but only from the God whom they served. And there is a lesson there for us as well as pastors and as church members, as those whose only hope of salvation is not to be clothed in our own righteousness and in our good, own good works. If, if we think that we are, we need to think again because we are not. And that is not our hope. Our hope is to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Our only hope of holiness is that God, out of sheer grace, would grant and credit to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ himself. So you had the veil at the entrance to the tabernacle. You had the altar with that veil of smoke. You had the laver that separated the court of the tabernacle from the holy place. And that holy place was entered on a daily basis by a priest to replenish the showbread and the oil. I'll see that you get a better version of this, but those were off to the sides as you walked into the the holy place. The lamp, the stand that held seven lamps. You might remember when I was reading from Revelation, seven torches blazing before the throne of God, which are the spirit of God. Well, in the holy place, there was a lamp stand with seven lamps on it. Different opinions exist exactly what that might have looked like. Some show it as almost more of a tree-type shape and say that it represents the tree of life with the Spirit of God burning there continuously. But a priest had to go in daily to replenish the oil and to replenish the bread. The bread of the presence was brought into the holy place and put there where it sat in God's presence for a day and then it was taken out, sanctified by God's presence and given as food to the priests. You might remember one of the letters to Revelation where God said, I will give him some of the holy manna, the holy bread. All of these things just tie together. But the priest could only go through the veil and enter the holy place after he had been cleansed at the laver. He went in and there was the lampstand, there was the table of the showbread. Straight ahead though, just inside, you can see a little, looks almost like an H with an extra crossbar there. Straight inside was the altar of incense where the priest offered a very special kind of incense that created smoke on coals that had been taken from the great altar outside. And in Leviticus, we're told why. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. And he, the priest, shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord. But notice the reason, the purpose for this. Smells good, yeah, of course. But the purpose is that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. He's past the outer gate. He's past the altar with its veil of smoke. He's washed at the laver. He's entered through the outer veil of the holy place. 
between him and the Ark of the Covenant is another veil separating the holy place from the most holy place, but still he has to burn this incense to create this veil of smoke to cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. Because beyond that altar of incense, behind yet another curtain that was opened only once a year and that only on the Day of Atonement, was the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, as it's sometimes known, in which was the Ark of the Covenant, the seat of mercy. You'll hear it called the mercy seat sometimes. Again, don't think of it so much as a place to sit, but as the seat of mercy, where the presence of God was manifest under the wings of the cherubim. And this symbolized heaven itself, this holy of holies, the holy dwelling of the thrice holy God, the reality that was symbolized by the furniture and the arrangement of the tabernacle and the temple as well. It symbolized the reality that was described by Isaiah in that very familiar passage from chapter 6. You all know this. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah wrote, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Now, where is that? And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, where my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I understand that Isaiah's distress in Isaiah chapter 6 is caused by the fact that in his vision he has been taken behind the veil where no one but the high priest was ever allowed to go and the high priest was only allowed to go there into the presence of God once a year. Isaiah of all people understood that he did not belong there. There's an incident recorded in the Old Testament where Isaiah is dealing, I, I believe it's with King Uzziah actually, where Uzziah decides that he's going to go into the temple as the king of Israel and offer incense before the Lord. And the priests all line up saying, you can't do this, don't do this, you don't belong here, this is not your job. He does it anyway and God strikes him with leprosy for the rest of his days because he has intruded into the holy place where even the king of Israel did not belong. And Isaiah understands, I do not belong here. Woe is me, for I am undone. I love the way that King James says that. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And in this vision, he understands this is not something that he should survive. He is seeing the one whom no one has ever seen or can see. So he falls on his face as one dead. And then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched Isaiah's mouth. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin 
atoned for. So then the Lord, seated on his throne, surrounded by angels, cherubim and seraphim, the train of his robe fills the temple, the foundations are shaken with the voice of him who spoke, and the house, just another word for temple, is filled with smoke. Do these things start to sound familiar? from the text that I read from the book of Revelation, is the image becoming clear? It should be. Hebrews chapter eight, verses one and two tells us, now the point in what we were saying is this. I have a little different point this morning, but it works. The point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And listen to how the writer to the Hebrews goes on to describe that place where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. He is a minister in the holy places. Jesus Christ is a minister in the holy places in the true tent, the true tabernacle, which the Lord set up, not man. So in Isaiah, and in Exodus, and in Ezekiel, and in Daniel, and in Revelation, and in every other biblical text where we have recorded for us a vision of the majesty and glory of the throne room of God, What's happening in those texts is that we are being taken behind the veil into the true most holy place, the true tabernacle, the one God set up. Not the tabernacle in the wilderness or even Solomon's temple, which in all of its glory was just a cheap imitation of the real thing, that true tabernacle that God set up. And if the Lord is willing, we are going to see in weeks to come just how important that understanding is to our understanding of the book of Revelation. When we see that the action in heaven takes place in that true temple, that true tabernacle. We see what God is doing in the heavens and how that plays out on the earth. We're going to find it so much easier to understand some of those difficult visions. But for this morning, just this. From the east end, from the entrance of the tabernacle court to the Ark of the Covenant, there were no less than six barriers. Three literal curtains or veils, three veils of smoke and the laver all stood between the presence of God in the most holy place and the people of God where they lived in their camp. And speaking of those barriers, the writer to the Hebrews said, for a tent was prepared, the one that Moses decreed. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it, above the Ark, above the mercy seat were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. 
These preparations thus having been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. As long as that earthly tabernacle was there, the way had not been opened. According to this arrangement, gift and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. There were closed doors between God's people and between the holiness of God. But remember where we started this morning? John wrote, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that's a voice of Christ, which is identified with the voice of God in Revelation chapter one. The first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And of course, this too, like Isaiah 6, is a vision. John goes on, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald and time would fail if we tried to go back through all of the Old Testament references that are found in that description. Suffice it to say, this is the Lord God Almighty, the living God, the Lord of hosts, seated on his throne. And like Isaiah, John relates having come into that presence. There are angelic beings there, and the four living cre creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And I know I've said this before, and I will probably say it again. But just a little free information here. Sometimes people object to repetition in songs of praise. God doesn't object to repetition. 24-7, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty. If there's any objectionable thing about repetition, it's what we are repeating. But when we are truly worshiping the Lord as we are called to worship the Lord, God is not concerned if we just say it over and over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and is and is to come. So there's lots of similarities, but notice the difference here too. In Isaiah's vision, as soon as that voice cries out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, Isaiah falls to his face, woe is me, for I am undone, as the King James says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Not so with John. He too is taken up in the spirit to the very throne room of the Lord of hosts and he is given a vision of God himself seated on his throne and he sees the brightness, the radiance of God's glory manifest in that emerald rainbow that surrounds the throne. 
to say nothing of the 24 other thrones that surround the throne. John hears that same eternal, unceasing declaration, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. But while John will be moved to tears in chapter 5, his reason there is a little different, as we will see, and it begs for the question, why? Why is Isaiah affected so differently from John when they're given what amounts to the very same vision? Well, for starters, John was affected that way in chapter 1, as you may recall, when John first saw the vision of Christ walking among the candlesticks and holding the stars in his hand. When I saw him, John wrote, I fell at his feet as though dead. So that's the same as Isaiah 2. But understand the difference between the way Isaiah and John are each set on their feet. In Isaiah's case, we see this mediating angel coming with a coal from the altar, touching his lips and saying, your sin is atoned for, you are forgiven. But with John, it's not a mediating angel, it's not one of the seraphim. It is Jesus Christ himself, the Lord he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I know when Pastor Matt and I were talking our way through these sections, one of the things we batted around was the possibility of preaching that section from Revelation 1 as John's funeral service. Because he falls on his face as though dead. And then Jesus Christ the Lord comes and just lays his hand on him and raises him up. I was dead and I am alive and I have the keys of death and Hades. And from that point in Revelation chapter one on through the rest of this book, John will often find himself in the presence of Almighty God and of the risen Christ. And never again will he fall down as though dead. And I think the reason for that is the removal of all of those barriers that lay between the old covenant prophet and the presence of God. In the days of Isaiah, they remained in place and Isaiah knew it. And as long as the barriers remained in place, the way into the holy place had not yet been opened. But the writer of the Hebrews tells us when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things that have come, Let me read that again and do it right. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the true tent, the true tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. So Jesus lays his hand on John and raises him up, and John never has to fall down again in that sense. There's no more, woe is me, for I am undone. Jesus is the one who was dead and is alive, who has the keys of death and Hades. Even so, he is the one who has opened the way 
as John wrote at the beginning of Revelation 4, after this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. In the technical sense, after this here probably refers to after Jesus had instructed him to write down his message to the seven churches. But remember, the whole book of Revelation goes to those churches. It's not like they got the letter part, but they didn't need the rest because it wasn't for them. The whole thing was for them. The whole thing spoke of that which would soon take place. John says, after this, and I think it applies then not just to after I had written down those messages to the churches, but to all of Jesus' declaration in chapters 1 to 3, including that part, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. And we saw this promise of the open door to the church at Philadelphia, to the angel of the church at Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. He went on to say, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. An open door that no one can shut because it has been opened by the one who has prevailed and who has the keys of death and Hades. And this is the door that was set before John, allowing him access behind the veil into the very throne room of God. In this book of Revelation, we are invited to pass through ourselves to enter behind the veil into the holy place, to be given a glimpse of God's most holy, wise, powerful providence as he governs all of his creatures and all of their actions working out all things according to the counsel of his own will in the realm of human history. And in a very specific sense, as we enter behind the veil, I hope that God is willing and that we will come to see the place that the worship of the church of Jesus Christ takes in God's working out his providence. Just a preview, something coming much, much later than this. But we talked about that altar of incense in the tabernacle and how the priest had to take some incense and some coals from the altar and he had to offer it there so that it would rise up and cover the mercy seat so that he would not die. Later on in the book of Revelation, John will be standing in that true tabernacle, in that true throne room. And one of the angels who had the bowls full of the seven last plagues, more on that later, will take that bowl and he will take some coals from the altar and he will mix in incense. And John very specifically says that incense is the prayers of the saints, the prayers of God's people. And when the incense, the prayers of God's people are mixed with fire from the altar, they're cast down on the earth and all sorts of momentous things begin to happen. See, we don't see it in that light, but our worship, our prayer, the songs that we sing when we come together as the people of God are that incense rising before the throne. And we're gonna see how that all plays out as we together with Christ, 
sit on that throne and reign with him. But we see it as we pass through that open door that no one can shut. And more than all of this, in this open door, we are reminded once and for all that those barriers that once separated people from God have been removed forever in Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and the firstborn from among the dead because as the writer to the Hebrews said in chapter 10, we have been sanctified. We have been made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected forever for all time those who are being sanctified. And here again is that open door. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that confidence that Isaiah never had, but we have it through the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That's a direct reference to that veil that separated the holy place and the most holy place. The one that you may recall when Jesus was crucified was torn in two from top to bottom, opening the way through his flesh, through the curtain. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. God has set before us an open door that no one can close that open way into his presence that Jesus died and gave his body and blood to open for us. So let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the promise of the one who shuts such that no one can open and who opens so that no one can shut. Even so, good Christian men rejoice with heart and soul and voice, for he has opened heaven's door, and we are blessed forevermore. Christ was born for this. Christ was born, and he lived, and he died, and he was raised to the right hand of the Father for this. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, as you have set before us that same open door so that we can enter into the holy place behind the veil through the new and living way opened for us by the blood of Jesus Christ. Enable us in your grace to draw near, to worship you in spirit and in truth, to find in you our hope and our strength, our confidence, to find you to be a rock a foundation on which we can take our stand and on which we can stand against all the fiery darts of the evil one and against all the storms that rage around us in this world, knowing that what our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has opened, no one can ever shut. Lord, draw us near as we worship you 
this morning and as we go out from this place worshiping your holy name in which we pray, amen.